Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and in this podcast series I'll be sharing conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine and bring insights, ideas and advice for your medical practice. In this podcast episode we're exploring controversies in prostate management, in particular in relation to prostate cancer. In 2016 in Australia there were over 19,000 new cases of prostate cancer it was the most common cause of cancer diagnosed in men and the second most common cancer overall. It was also the second most common cause of male death from cancer. Against this statistic, many prostate cancers are indolent and in some autopsy studies, 50 to 70% of men aged 80 years have prostate cancer. Quite an astounding figure. Screening for prostate cancer is controversial with the traditional digital rectal exam, the DRE, a relatively cumbersome and insensitive method, and PSA studies subject to controversies of their own after initial introduction as a monitoring rather than diagnostic test. The United States Prostate, Lung, Colorectal, Ovarian Cancer Screening Child found no mortality benefit from combined DRE and PSA during a 13-year follow-up, although screening resulted in a 12% increase in prostate cancer detection. Surgical approaches have also evolved recently with the adaptation of robotic assistance. So, to unpack some of the controversies associated with the subject, we are joined by the very engaging and intellectual urologist, Mr. Dennis King. So, Dennis King, thank you very much for joining me on Everyday Medicine. And uh, you're a urologist and a very popular one in our local area, and I really appreciate you making time to join me today. Um, but I'd like to talk about uh, prostate cancer and the, some of the controversies uh, about that as we, uh, as we meet in clinical practice. But before I do, can I ask you a bit about your journey? How did you become a urologist? Okay. From uh, the, the land of the long white cloud. Well, well, I never actually intended to become a urologist. Uh, through medical school, I had no idea of what I wanted to do. And in fact, when I finished, I did my diploma of paediatrics and obstetrics and was GP for gen to general practice for about a year. But then an, one of my old colleagues said to me, um, when do you do surgery? Are you sure you want to do general practice? So in those days, um, basically, there was an exam, the part one exam, you could sit it, and once you sat it, it was um, getting onto surgical specialty programs was much easier than it was today in New Zealand or Australia for that matter. And so, you know, I managed to pass the exam with a little study, and then really we were very lucky because at that time there were more positions and there were applicants for most specialties, and urology wasn't terribly popular, but it had a you know, we work with other with uh, urologists, and you know, some of them take an interest in you, and it mm. seems to be a pleasant specialty. And so, I kind of drifted my way in there. It, it's been a common story that everyone's had a, a mentor that's mm. uh, um, the same, really, that sort of directed us toward one decision or another. And uh, now, thank you for sharing that with me, Dan. Mm. So, uh, we were discussing before we started this interview that. Um, the second most commonly diagnosed cancer in Australia is uh, prostate cancer, and it's responsible for the second, the second most common cause of death from cancer in men. So it's a big problem. I mm. think someone dies about every um, every four hours or so, prostate cancer. 
But there are controversies because not all prostate cancers seem to be highly aggressive. Um, can you, uh, in our conversation, they capture some of these uh, controversies for discussion? So how, yeah. how do you approach uh, this whole subject? So if I can talk about it perhaps as I might talk with one of my patients. So there are two big controversies, I think. One is how we diagnose and screen for test for prostate cancer. And the second controversy is the treatment of prostate cancer in general. So if we go back to the first, um, PSA testing um, was approved by the FDA initially as a test for the monitoring of prostate cancer. In fact, it was never designed as a diagnostic test to look for prostate cancer. It was only um, got the FDA approval for monitoring prostate mm. cancer, mm. but it rapidly changed to be used as a de facto screening test. Mm. So it was never designed for that. And the problem is that um, when we look at prostate cancer, it's an exceedingly common cancer. Um, there were autopsy studies done in men aged 70, and about 40% of them will be found to have some prostate cancer. However, the majority of them will be asymptomatic, mm. and the classic numbers are 8% will um, be symptomatic from their prostate cancer, right. and 3% would have died from their prostate cancer. Mm. Now, those are historical figures, but it's probably also important to understand that PSA testing would not have detected the whole 40% of men with prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. So we've got this test. Um, it's reasonably sensitive for picking up prostate cancer, but the specificity of it is poor. And to revoke, just to yes. maybe if you're not aware of that, specificity, when we're talking about that, if you have an elevated PSA, about 30% of those men will have prostate cancer. But a lot, in a lot of other men, the PSA will be elevated from BPH, mm. uh, urinary tract infection, prostatitis. Mm. Uh, so there are lots of other things that can push Probably the number up. Positives kind mm. of thing, yes. So, you know, automatically you've got a test uh, looking for cancer. You've got numbers uh, where the, you've got situations where the PSA is elevated. Uh, where people are worried about prostate cancer, but mm. the majority of them will not have prostate cancer. Mm. And to make it even a little bit more difficult, there are people with normal range PSAs who actually do have quite aggressive prostate cancers as mm. well. Mm. Now, in the past, the elevation in the PSA uh, basically leads to a biopsy, uh, and a biopsy of the prostate is a procedure we do as a under a, a day procedure, general, usually a general anaesthetic or sedation, but it does have some morbidity with it. And the problem is that uh, in the past, um, it has been associated with episodes of sepsis. Mm. Um, and so we've now moved from doing transrectal biopsies to transperineal prostate biopsies where the incidence of sepsis is less. Mm. That sounds painful. Uh, fortunately, either done in a local, I usually do them myself under sedation. Right. Mm. Okay, I'll come to you. But a biopsy has been quite important because firstly it establishes the diagnosis 
and also establishes the grade of the prostate cancer. So you've done, have you done a transrectal ultrasound at this point already to, 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 you have to do that, I guess, before the biopsy, don't you? So Well, normally a transrectal ultrasound is part of the biopsy. Okay, done at the same time. Mm, because right. a transrectal ultrasound per se uh, doesn't actually help as a diagnostic aid to differentiate people who should have a biopsy or shouldn't have a biopsy. Okay. But the landscape has also changed in the last three or four years. Mm where we've now, the way MRI prostates um, are performed, um, has increased their diagnostic yield. So um, most of us with faced with an elevated PSA would then seek to proceed to an MRI of the prostate. Uh, an MRI prostate has quite good sensitivity and specificity. So you're looking at nodules on that, you can tell yeah, you look at the image and there is a T2-weighted mm. image, mm. so there are changes there with signal intensity, and then you look at the diffusion-weighted imaging. Okay. I mean, that's all kind of jargon, yeah. yes. but we're yeah. looking for particular changes which give us a better idea of whether prostate cancer is likely to be present. Having said that, the MRI is still not mm. um, 100%. You know, like you can have about 15 to 20% false positives and a similarly and similar number of false mm. negatives. And a lot of that depends on the um, experience of the radiologist and the urologist mm. reading the MRI scan. We're just at a certain point, aren't we, currently in this era, this is where we are. We have to accept that there are unknowns and uncertainties and the technology mm. is way better than it obviously was, but it's not perfect. Mm. It's not perfect for anything. Well, I haven't heard you talk about digital rectal examination. Is that something we don't really worry about so much? It's just too inaccurate for us to, mm. to rely on? Occasionally, colonoscopy, for example, in a soul, examine someone. It should be part of our colon examination before we insert the colonoscope. And I think, oh, gosh, that prostate feels pretty hard. Mm. And I'll make a comment. And, well, there have been cases where the cancer has subsequently been diagnosed. But is that generally, do we think of DRE as being a, a pretty kind of... Uh, um, you know, superseded type of examination or approach? Yeah, look, I think that partly depends on the expertise of the person doing them. I mean, when you examine that question at a general practice level, um, really the specificity uh, and sensitivity of DRE is poor. Mm. Um, having said that, uh, at, and so as a urologist doing a fair number, there certainly are prostate cancers mm. which you will detect by DRE with a normal range PSA. Mm. But as I understand it, DRE is not recommended by most the College of General Practice guidelines mm. in screening for prostate cancer. You were mentioning there's a small group of people with um, prostate cancer that are symptomatic. Are we talking about the sort of symptoms that you might see with benign prostatic hypertrophy, mm. like uh, outlet obstruction type symptoms or other sort of symptoms? Yeah, PSA's testing is very interesting because it's led to a big stage migration in the diagnosis of prostate cancer. So pre-PSA testing, prostate cancer would usually manifest with uh, obstructive symptoms or metastatic symptoms such mm. as bone pain. Mm. And if we look, think about the anatomy of the prostate, uh, it is divided into different zones. 
but the majority of prostate cancer is actually on the periphery of the prostate. So for it to cause obstructive symptoms and obstruct the prostatic urethra going through the middle of the prostate, mm. it actually has to get yes. very big. Yeah. Okay. So with PSA testing, uh, it's changed the stage at which we're detecting prostate cancer. So the majority of men I see with prostate cancer, in fact, are asymptomatic. Is there a concept of PSA velocity? Is that something that you, you also take into account when you're assessing a patient, if you can see that the PSA has been changing mm. fairly rapidly over a period of time? Can you make a comment about that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So the problem with PSA is its specificity. Um, in an attempt to improve the specificity, um, PSA velocity, PSA density, and free total PSA have been used mm. in an attempt to improve the specificity, mm. and they all add something. Mm. There's no doubt that someone with a PSA velocity, so a doubling time of um, three years, mm. will certainly prick up my yes, interest. Um, a doubling time of 12 months is certainly very worrying. So straight to an MRI, potentially. MRI and potentially biopsy. Mm. Mm. So most the uh, procedure usually is an elevated PSA leading to referral. Mm. Uh, from that referral, um, most of us will proceed to an MRI scan. Now, with the MRI scan, um, we've got two pathways. If it's positive, then we'll usually embark on targeted and systematic biopsies. Mm. So targeted at the MRI lesion. So mm. that's a real advantage of an MRI to tell you where to biopsy, mm. as mm. well as doing systematic biopsies throughout the prostate. Mm. However, if your MRI is negative uh, and does not show any obvious lesion, then you still have to do some risk stratification. Mm. And I think if they had a family history, they had a significant PSA velocity or a PSA density, that would um, still make me consider a prostate biopsy. Mm. When you, so I wouldn't simply rely on the MRI as the director of whether or not mm. they should have traffic. Th that's right. where your experience comes in. It's the art of medicine, and there's, a, there's probably a feeling for that, isn't there? Mm. Um, can you tell from an MRI anything about whether this is going to be an indolent lesion or a more aggressive lesion? Do we have any way of telling, telling well, that? Yes. And in fact, the MRI has a propensity to diagnose intermediate and high-grade cancer. It will diagnose some lower-grade cancer, but it will tend to underdiagnose that group. And in fact, when we look at this comes to the um, right back to the first controversy mm. is how we manage prostate cancer. Mm. Mm. And really, in a simplistic way, we divide it into low-grade, intermediate-grade and high-grade cancer. And that's based on either a, a, the Gleason score system, mm. which we alluded, to, we talked about before the interview, which is out of 10. Essentially, the lowest um, Gleason score really diagnoses Gleason score 6. 7s um, are an intermediate, mm. and 8 to 10s would be a high-risk cancer. Mm. 
So we do risk stratification based on the Gleason score, the PSA, and the digital rectal examination. So that puts you into different categories. And from that, you can make a decision based on the patient's uh, general health Mm. and life expectancy, balanced against the aggressiveness of cancer, Mm. about whether they're likely to benefit from treatment or not. I see. Can can someone who has a lesion that is a low Gleason score what, what is a low Gleason score? Five? Uh, six. Be, six, oh, six would be the lowest. Six. Does that, suppose that patient is maybe just right on that cusp, you think, oh, I don't think this patient necessarily should be put forward for a prostatectomy at this stage. Do you, you just keep a close eye on those patients and monitor it? Can that six become an eight? Mm. It, it, can you, can you get, get a sense from the looking at the histopathology and the Gleason score that it's going to become... Something more aggressive or or not? So two questions there. The first is that there's well-identified for low-risk cancer uh, the management modality of active surveillance. Right. So the the idea underpinning active surveillance is that low-risk prostate cancer is unlikely to affect someone in their lifetime. Mm. You want to pick up the group of people where it um, may change, and that may be an inherent change in the tumour, or it may reflect a sampling issue Mm. uh, in that you've only detected the Gleason score 6 and you've missed the 8 cancer. So these people you monitor based on their PSA, it's usually serial MRIs and perhaps Mm. a repeat biopsy. Um, And we know that over a 15-year period, there will be about 30% of people who will progress in some way and seek treatment, Mm. whether that be progression of their tumour or um, a psychological inability to not have their tumour treated, Mm. because obviously there's Mm. a lot of anxiety with this. So, but in the group who continue without any evidence of progression, their um, cancer-specific survival at 15 years is, is about, 90, in various series, but close to 98 to 100%. Mm, mm, okay. So they can be very safely observed. Just observed conservatively. That's very helpful to understand what, you know, how the discussion at this point. Uh, that's really put it in perspective for me. Um, let's talk now about the situation in which you want to operate because the Gleason score is high and you're worried that this patient is going to maybe succumb from their cancer. It's an aggressive cancer mm-hmm. and there is an age group where it is appropriate. They don't have too many other comorbidities. You're going to push ahead. Of course, you're worried, I think, about side effects like uh, incontinence and uh, impotence and so forth. TURP has to do with benign prostatic hypertrophy. Thanks yes. for sorting that one out. Uh, so we're now talking about robotic versus open. Can, can you make some comments about that and just discuss the controversies there, Dennis? Okay. Um, so perhaps um, it pays to have a little bit of a historical perspective on this. Mm-hmm. You, you need a little bit of background to see where, it's, where robotic surgery has come from and why things have evolved the way they have. Um, So historically, it was in the early 80s that radical prostatectomy as an open operation was developed because we began to understand the relationship between the prostate and the external 
urethral sphincter and also the it's neurovascular really, bundles. Quite recent. It's a recent operation. So in 1982, the first radical prostatectomies were being done. By 2002 was when the first robotic prostatectomy was done mm. um, by a chap called Binder in Germany. So basically the robotic surgery um, was initially developed as tele-surgery by the American military. Okay. That was the thrust behind it. Mm. You would have a mass unit, uh, a surgeon operating at a console, and in the battlefield, the soldier could be dragged mm. to the uh, trauma unit and the surgeon could operate at a yeah. distance. Yeah. So, look, there, there are lots of inherent advantages of robotic surgery. As a, a tool, it's quite magnificent. It gives you magnification mm. uh, up to 15 times. It gives you 3D vision, mm. and it gives you more instrument dexterity compared with plain, plain laparoscopic surgery. Mm. Um, and But it's not independent, so it doesn't do anything independently. No, I think I've spoken to a couple of other surgeons about their, in their fields, and I, I think... A lot of us rather naively have the idea of a car assembly light. Mm. You're just sitting back and the robot's doing all this and that's going to be perhaps a, maybe in 100 years mm. or whatever. But this is very much you're doing it. Mm. Uh, you're just using this, this technology to enhance, uh, the, as you say, the, the operating field. Mm. Um, so it's, yeah. a, it's a fantastic tool. Um, I think it's, you know, when you look at it, the uptake of it was very rapid. Mm. Um, mm. So, I mean, historically, back in the early 2000s, it was about less than 1% of radical prostatectomies were done robotically. But in the States, a decade later, only a decade later, mm. more than 90% of the prostate mm. cancers being treated surgically were done mm. with a robotic operation. Mm. And this sudden change is implementation really was done with a complete lack of evidence mm. as to efficacy. If we look at long-term studies, the trial evidence, and there have been randomised phase mm. three trials, mm. we've had a Cochrane review, and we've had meta-analysis. And the upshot of it is when you compare open versus robotic prostatectomy, there are advantages with robotic prostatectomy with reduced hospital stay mm. and reduced blood loss. But if you look at the oncological and functional outcomes at 12 months. So the oncology results such as positive margins, PSA recurrence, mm. the functional results in terms of incontinence mm. and erectile dysfunction, there is no difference. Mm. But, you know, basically we're in a situation where the robots have been bought mm. and there are over 5,000 of them worldwide. Mm. And it's very difficult to backpedal. Yes, yes. Um, you want to use the technology. Is it a longer operation using the robot or is it uh, about the same? So I think it depends on one's expertise. Mm. In my, in, you know, if you've reasonably experienced, the operation takes about the same amount of time, mm. if mm. not a little less. Mm. But where the interesting evidence amongst all this is, is quite clear. It's not the technique of whether it's open or robotic surgery which matters. It's actually the surgeon. There are very good correlations mm. between surgical volume and outcomes. 
in, t in terms of both oncological and functional. And functional and oncological. Which are the two key things, of course. Yeah, the two yes. key things. So there's a huge difference basically on, on operator experience mm. and expertise. Mm. And this matters a lot because when you look at radical prostatectomy in the States, over 80% are performed by surgeons who perform less than five a year. Boy, that's uh, quite frightening. It is. So it's really frightening. I think that accounts for a, the huge variation mm. Mm. in outcomes. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the robot's been really interesting as a new surgical technique. Mm. Because, firstly, when we consider our urologists, um, those training have little to no exposure to robotic surgery. Mm. So most of the experience develops when, they've, when they're a qualified surgeon. Mm. So then some elect to do a dedicated robotic fellowship, mm. but most commonly most don't. When we look at the implementation of this technology into our hospitals, people have required, on average, and this differs between centres, but only three to ten mentored cases. Mm. And then they move on to independent surgery. Mm. Um, so you've got two groups. You've got the urology trainees who basically come to the completion of training with very little experience, if any. Mm. And then you have people who are trying to transition to robotic surgery. And the issue is that your previous open experience doesn't translate to robotic competence. Is your impression, Dennis, as an experienced urologist, and you, you're an expert in both methods, is your experience maybe a bit different to what we're seeing from the United States, that perhaps there are better functional outcomes using a robot in your hands, maybe slightly better oncological outcomes? Do, mm. do, do you have a feeling for that? I would say, it, once again, it really depends on the quality of the surgeon and the operation they perform. Um, I work very closely with Peter Royce, who's, um, who's a very well-known urologist in Melbourne, and he probably does one of the most beautiful open radical mm. prostatectomies. Uh, prostatectomies. Um, mm. And really, I don't think from a functional point of view, my outcomes are, are different to his. Mm. Mm. Okay. Yeah. My patients may leave a little of the hospital, uh, a day or two earlier, mm. and there may be reduced bleeding. But I think the real important message is that it depends on the expertise of the surgeon. Mm. And, you know, when you look at surgical training, um, there is variability. There was a wonderful paper um, published looking at expertise and training and basically for surgery they divided um, surgeons into terms of five quintiles uh, in terms of outcomes so you had um, and you're ranked into which quintile but essentially you would never get better than the surgeons who trained you so if you were trained by the surgeons in the quint fifth quintile, mm. your results would never be better than theirs. Mm. If you're, so you would never ascend to be in the first quintile. That's very interesting. You mm. need to pick your mentors mm. very carefully. 
Dennis, thank you very much for taking me through this subject. It's um, been a really wonderful conversation with you and appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Pleasure, Luke. Thank you. Thank you for joining me in that conversation with uh, Dennis King. He navigated that difficult subject with great clarity. I'm so glad he was able to, uh, to join us. During the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at gihealth.com.au.